Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The Diamond Dogs struggle to avoid an SEC road sweeping while on campus there's a new coach calling Humphrey Coliseum home. It's a Monday morning, so it's time to overreact here in the doghouse on the Believe Network. Yes, Monday morning, as Mississippi State begins the next phase of baseball season by hosting Alabama at home this weekend after a tough weekend in Georgia, which is probably going to push the Bulldogs out of most polls for whatever that is worth at this point of any season. Uh, Still, it will sting the pride should that come to pass for the defending national champions not to have a number in front of their name going into their next SEC series. That's the price of losing two of three to a top 20 Georgia team, which um, had a lot of things in its favor, but Mississippi State should have won the series. Uh, just go ahead and get that out of the way. Mississippi State not just could have, but probably should have run the series. Uh, let me correct myself. There will be a number attached to Mississippi State, even if it's not shown on the TV screen or in the game notes. This past week, the NCAA finally began publishing their ratings power index, for now ever known as RPI, and the Bulldogs were not in a strong place at all. They went to Athens number 178. That's a far cry from uh, certainly national seating, never mind hosting situation, possibly even uh, NCAA tournament selection. And yes, a long season to play, but 178 means there's a lot of room to really dig out from. Now, while playing Georgia will automatically provide a few points in a positive direction, really the only point that matters at this, I'm sorry, point is winning games. And the Bulldogs ought to have returned with two victories from Athens. Okay, so Friday was a wipeout all the way around other than Preston Johnson. Threw well enough to keep his club in the game, or better, if there had been any sort of early scoring. Saturday was in the visiting dog's paws, and it just flat slipped away. 5-2 lead. Yes, they showed some grittiness coming back from 10-6 down. Tie the game up. 11 to 11, managed to lose it 12 to 11 on a walk off hit. So, a lot of frustrations for the first two, and they vented those frustrations pretty spectacularly on Sunday. As Coach Chris Lamona said, the flight home was made a bit more pleasant by salvaging a split. But the series was not won despite every opportunity, which just further fuels the frustrations. Again, let's not undersell the team Mississippi State played. Georgia may not be a pick to win the East Division. I think they're third in most projections, nor the SEC overall. But those, that's a pretty good ball team. And not only are they pretty good, they're veteran. Uh, Coach Ron Polk commented about this constantly on his broadcast. And uh, when Ron talks about experience, well, let's just say Ron knows experience when he sees it. So it, I think it showed in one absolute aspect. 27 innings pitched by Georgia teams one error committed in that whole stretch. Now, considering how often and how sharply balls were put in play most of the weekend, that's impressive. So Georgia had a bunch of graduates. They're a seasoned ball team. They play well at home, and the wind was making it a launching pad, which they're much more familiar with than, say, Mississippi State, which, you know, Duneo Field takes a little bit of a shot to get the ball out, even with the wind. Georgia, the balls were leaping out, and the home team took advantage of that on Friday evening. However, Mississippi State had their own chances to at least score in that game, much less keep it competitive as well. 
Uh, getting back to the defense, State had four errors for the weekend, two on Friday, two on Saturday. Coincidence, those are the games State wins. Well, this was very much out of early season character because, as we pointed out, the State began SEC season with the fewest charge errors of any conference club, only seven, and yet they have four in the first two games of conference play. Okay, maybe there was some jinx factor in me pointing this out. And Coach Lamonis said Saturday what he would call the swing game turned on either official errors or plays just simply not made that weren't charged as errors. He said, bluntly, if State makes a couple more plays, we have success. Success is in winning a series. And the fact that State was not making those plays surprised the skipper. Like I said, they were leading the league in fewest errors. He said, this is a good defensive team when you look at it. We should day in, day out, play good defense. And they have. They certainly played good defense on Sunday. But as much as the errors caused a problem, let's get right down to what really was the issue there. First off, State did not hit on Friday against a good pitcher. Hey, it happens. But you cannot defend, even if you put a shift on, a walk. If the gloves weren't as sharp as usual, it still would have been far make that infinitely better, making Georgia put the ball in play rather than issuing 12 free passes in a single Saturday. Now, let's be fair, Georgia pitching was just about as bad the second and third games themselves with 22 total walks. In fact, State only had 19 total walks on the weekend. But 12 of them came in that one game, and I don't know if State has ever won a game with double-digit walks other than maybe one of those midweek laughers at some point. I, I don't have the time to go into the research, but the odds are phenomenally against you when you're putting guys on base, not making them put the ball in play or even swing the stick at all, especially when you do it multiple times in an inning and those free runs add up, add up, add up. And State also had uh, their own issues as well, striking out. You know, I've commented Friday about the state pitching seems to be an all-or-nothing affair. Either they get a strikeout or they give up a home run. Well, that kind of turns out to be what state batters did in a couple of games. In fact, go back to the Binghamton game, which was way closer than it had any right to be. In those four games, state had 38 strikeouts. That's almost 10 per. Yes, that's how it works out mathematically for you folk in Smith County. The recalled case, sure, there were some hesitant swings at borderline stuff, and Friday there was just flat out getting beat by a hot arm. But let's do give some credit for some contact that didn't show on the box score. You know, talking to Steve Robertson, who was covering the series in person, he thought at least three of the drives, and I agree watching the broadcast, surely seemed to be leaving the yard and maybe with a touch of a different angle would have. It, it would not have changed the outcome. Georgia was just going to run away with the Friday game pretty much regardless but it would have built, boosted the batting confidence going into the rest of the weekend. In fact, Mississippi State ought to have more confidence right now than it had going into the weekend, even after losing two series, or two games in the series. It is not at all coincidence in my mind, maybe yours, but not in mine, that in the week's three wins, Binghamton, I'm sorry, two wins, Binghamton and Georgia, State hit 10 home runs with eight doubles. That's out of 147 total at-bats in those games. Now, yes, Georgia's a hitter's park under most conditions, and with them blowing out, it was a launching pad. 
Hunter Hines and Brad Cummins will surely give a witness to that. Both of them had six shots already on the season, and even Kellum Clark, who cooled off a pretty good bit this past week, has six homers as well. By the way, R.J. Yeager, maybe he was inspired, the former Mercer player, by going back to the state of Georgia. He was going yard all week long. If you can keep those guys slugging on the home field as well, you feel good. And frankly, several of the state shots would have left any campus park in the country. More than this, Lamona said that the offensive games won. Even some of the games they lost, State was making Georgia's pitchers work and then work some more. Even in the three-hit Friday, allowing for that. For the whole series, State batted just under 300 on the weekend. And in the Binghamton game, and the average goes up to 350 for the weekend, for the whole week. Now, that still has State down in the lower rungs of the SEC offense. I'm not glossing that over. The Bulldogs have a long way to go just to get to mid-pack in SEC batting average. And, yes, we pondered Friday how this spring is shaping up as a season for swinging in the SEC. It's not a good season for to be a pitcher so far, partly because of some of the elite arms that have been lost, obviously. But, frankly, the batters have just taken over the game this year. And I think in some situations maybe the uh, umpiring is helping because strike zones seem a little bit tight. That still didn't keep State's pitchers from getting 30 strikeouts at Georgia against those 19 walks. And you take out that fluke Saturday – and they're back their dominating rate of strikeouts, and yet still giving up home runs and doubles as well. Like I said, there's a lot of all or nothing going on there with state pitching. What gets to me is running through the numbers a little bit. The ERA for the entire week was around 7.0. Now, that's not allowing for the runs that score and errors, quite obviously, and there were a lot of those too, as we mentioned. But earn run average of 7.0 when you're playing Binghamton, and then three games at Georgia. And, yes, we complimented the starters. Preston Johnson gave a good start. Parker Stinnett, he didn't have the control. He had contributed most of those walks in game two. And even Cade Smith had his strikeouts but was not exactly commanding the strike zone entirely. For the Georgia weekend, the starters had an ERA of 5.7. Think about that a moment. I mean, I'm surprised. I was thinking it would be somewhere around four, maybe less. Then I ran the numbers and go, whoa, 5.7. So State was not getting the starting pitching that it really needed in their first SEC series, which is something we were concerned about, obviously, because you're going to SEC ball. SEC batters who have scouting reports on you. Many have seen you before. Like I said, Georgia's a veteran team. May not have played State for a while, but they certainly get all these reports. They have all the video and know how some of these guys are throwing. And they're also very relieved they don't have to face Landon Sims or Stone Simmons, who both are out for the year. Good interview, by the way, by Landon in the uh, the game on Sunday. Still, you can't have your starting staff with an ERA of that close to six and have much hope of winning SEC series. I don't care where you're playing at, home or away. So you're still getting the strikeouts, but you're also getting hit, and your runs are scoring. And then when the defense doesn't do its part on the end, Well, that's just the recipe for a bad weekend, and for the most part, Mississippi State had a bad weekend, which is why now they're 1-2 and to begin SEC season. Is that entirely shocking? No, because even good state teams, even other good SEC teams, if they open on the road, tend to lose a series. It just happens. It was the way state lost some of these games that has you concerned about what's going to be the long-term prospectus for the rest of this season. Yes, we're seeing the offense start turning it on here, and that's very welcome because it's been such an issue. Uh, 
but the pitching has got to get there, get you more innings, more consistent, and maybe not even go for so many strikeouts, but let that defense play. Try to get guys out on the third or fourth pitch instead of working five or six pitches to get that K. We love strikeouts. I mean, look at last year's pitching staff, which smashed the NCAA all-time record for season strikeouts. It was awesome to have three guys with triple-digit Ks in there. But that's a lot of pitches being thrown, and where State could afford to do that last year with a guy like Sims ready to come in and slam the door at the end, you don't have that luxury this year, and you still have some guys who are struggling week to week to week to find the zone consistently. Some innings, they just look great. I I go back to Preston Johnson's Friday night. There were times I thought he was in position to dominate the game, and then he couldn't finish off one batter or something would happen defensively behind him that gave Georgia the chance, and then, of course, a couple of balls left the yard. Anyway, State seems to be settled with the rotation right now of Johnson, Stinnett, and Cade Smith, who threw pretty well today. Stats weren't awesome, but he threw well enough, and face it, When your team scores 20 runs, you can throw pretty much all you want to and just let them slap the ball, and odds are you're still going to hold them down. You know, the the 20-run game was as much out of character as the 11-0 loss on Friday. It was a weekend of such extremes, but as I've said before, and I'm afraid I'll be saying often again, this is a team of extremes. It's, um, like I said, all or nothing at times. Yes or no, positive or negative and not a whole lot in between. Maybe things settle down this week. Uh, Alabama's coming in. Their RPI is in the high 50s at the moment. They may improve a little bit. State does seem to have figured out a few things about the batting order, too. Um, Putting Jess Davis in center field is a little bit of a gamble, Um, not because they don't think he can handle the position, but you've you've had several guys you've run through at the center field spot already this season, and now you're trying another one. Well, the result is he's got a five-game hitting streak going, batting in the leadoff position. That is most welcome news because it means you can leave Cameron James and others swinging higher in the order. Notice that you're moving Hunter Hines up higher into the order as well to get him in those RBI situations. If Brad Cumbus down in the 6-7 slot, whatever they put him from game to game, keeps crushing the ball the way he did when he does make contact, then the end of the order is in much better shape. And you know the guys... Logan Tanner, Luke Hancock, they're going to come through. They're going to make their base hits. They're going to make plays happen with the stick. You just feel better about it. So settling leadoff is one great big move if indeed this holds up. It hasn't so far this season, but Jess Davis seems to be the best chance for a guy to stick there both in leadoff and at center field and make it a whole lot easier filling out that lineup card. By the way, he was 4-14 for the full weekend at Georgia but had some good contacts that even went unrewarded. I'm, I'm not saying that Lamonis and Jake Gotro have totally committed to Tanner Leggett at shortstop so far because Lane Forsyth did start the Saturday game. And by the way, since both are right-handers, that's not even a factor in making a decision who's going to be in the lineup card that day. I just am convinced that they see more offensive potential in Leggett, who, well, that's exactly, exactly what it is. He has more offensive potential. Forsythe had a, had a few good games in there, but just long-term, you feel better going with the bat in a team that's got to get the offense to support that pitching staff I've been talking about. And always, of course, Forsythe's available to come in at any point as a defensive substitution or to run a base, then play defense as well. Comfortable with that very much. So you start seeing some things taking shape. Ideally, you'd have had this settled 
two weekends into the season. In Mississippi State's case this particular season, it's probably going to take another SEC weekend or two to really figure out, okay, this is our regular lineup that we're going to go with unless we're looking for specific right-left matchups, then maybe we'll adjust it to this lineup card, and we can predict that as well. That's what Coach Lamontis wants. He hasn't had the luxury of doing that, but maybe we see the makings of that lineup and defensive order getting set up, and we see guys finding their comfort zones where they're swinging in the batting order. However, I talked about pitching, and I mostly talked about the starting pitching, but the bullpen, well, it's sometimes it's better just to not say anything than say something, but the simple fact is it is difficult not to think that this bullpen's strength is protecting a big lead. Captain Obvious, huh? Well, and I mean a crooked number margin. Because, quite frankly, who among us is really comfortable going to those late innings with a one-run lead or a tied score? I'll repeat, the talents are there for all the relief roles. It's simply the point now where those arms must step up and stop the other guys from scoring and then seal a victory. The talents are there. Some guys, they they walk out and they have a great one or two at-bats and then the hit comes or a play is not made. And it it just spirals from that point. Yes, we knew they were going to be doing it without Sims in the back because he was moving the starter. You've still got to have those guys set up. And frankly, who right now would you absolutely say, okay, two-run lead, ninth inning, this is who's coming into the game? You don't know because it's going to depend on who has to be used night after night after night. Speaking of night after night, Mississippi State gets back into action on the home field this weekend and as well midweek Tuesday night with Southern University. Uh, Lamonis, who uh, spends more time looking at weather reports probably than your average dog, has already thought that uh, there may be some rain coming through Tuesday as well. I don't know exactly what time. It's a little far out to predict it. But even as early as Sunday afternoon, he was saying that there's a chance, if they can't play on Tuesday, that Southern University can hang around and still play on Wednesday. So I think that game will get played one way or the other. But Lamona simply said, I don't want to make that call too early. <laughs> and he joked that the fan base is probably mad at him because he's moved, in his own words, about a million games already. Well, he's not moving anything. Weather is doing the moving. But that's where it stands right now. State will be interested to see what happens when the NCAA releases its updated RPI sometime today. A little too late for us to get it into this um, overreaction podcast, but something you look forward to as the afternoon's news develops as well. Oh, and I mentioned moving. Well, let's go to Humphrey Coliseum because somebody is moving into the coach's office in the Mize Pavilion. Chris Jones. Now, Mississippi State had targeted him early. There were probably, I would say, at least three leading candidates for the job, but every indication we had, talking to Steve Roberts and Paul Jones, was that he was probably the top target all along, New Mexico State coach. And the reason State did not name him until Sunday was his team was still, still playing as late as Saturday, a five-point loss to Arkansas in the um, second round of the NCAA tournament. Um, and they held the Razorbacks, by the way, to season low in both shooting and scoring. So um, it's not like this guy coming in is going to abandon the defensive philosophies that Ben Howland made the core of his program. But he is more about tough play, about making plays on both ends of the court. 
I think he's going to be an entertaining coach there. Um, his team began their NCAA tournament this year by beating Connecticut in one of those 12-5 upsets up in Buffalo. And it was the, from what I see, it was the first win by the Aggies. Oh, yeah, Aggies. You know, Aggies, Mississippi State, once with the Aggies. Nice little uh, symmetry there. It was the first win for New Mexico State in nigh on to 30 years. So he's got that program going. And in fact, they were so sold on him out in Las Cruces that he signed a contract just a year ago. Yes, in, the, in, in, in 2021, he signed a contract which was supposed to take him all the way through 2027. And this was after UTEP. Think about it. UTEP came calling. And they were willing to jump him up there both in salary and time. He was to get an annual salary this year of uh, $580,000 with the retention, which did not include incentives, by the way. So I imagine with the win in the display tournament, besides getting just a bid in the first place, he probably made close to $600,000 this past year. Well, he's going to do better than that at Mississippi State because Ben Highland was making just over $2 million. I don't know if they're going to give him the full load that the previous coach got because, after all, Ben Highland had been a head coach for a long time with Final Ford in his resume. Well, Mississippi State has the money to spend and in, I think not to spend, invest. This is an investment in Chris Jans, a coach who is going to come in, and as we said often, not he doesn't have to rebuild the program. Ben Howland rebuilt the program into a competitive stage. He did not succeed in making the next step of going to the NCAA tournament regularly. Well, that's this new coach's job, and he starts at a much better point. Paul Jones is beginning in touch with the prospects who signed with Mississippi State back in November. Yes, technically they can be turned loose for a new coach, but realistically Mississippi State wants to hold on to them. I know uh, if I'm him, the first call I make is to Iverson Molinar and say, hey, Iverson, I'm going to put you at your ideal position next year. You're not going to take the beating you had to this year. You're going to be more free to make plays that you like on offense. Come on, and let's have a senior season together here in Humphrey Coliseum. Same for all the state players who have the options of looking at the transfer portal, as they all are. I mean, honestly, what basketball players out there haven't idly scanned the transfer portal? It's just the nature of the beast now. But he'll be getting in touch with the players as fast as he can. Uh, There will be a midweek introduction of Chris Jones uh, will not be public as best we know at this point because the Coliseum is now beginning its serious stage of renovation. Uh, it's not set up to hold public events at this point. I don't know how they'll get it ready for graduation, which is not that far away, but you know, something will happen between now and then to make it possible right now. They just want to go ahead, take care of this spring break ends this weekend today. In fact, the, players supposed to be back at class, so they'll be able to meet their new coach in a couple of days. You know, you can read the stories on jeanspage.com that Paul and others have filed about the new coach. I just want to throw out one number, his home court record in New Mexico State, which, by the way, has a nice little advantage all of its own, but it's hardly in line with, say, Rupp Arena or, uh, you know, Vietnam and places like that. His teams were 61-7, and on the home court. If he has anything close to that in his first four or five years in Humphrey Coliseum, well, let's just say that all those seats which have been sold but not been used, they're going to be occupied. Never mind all the student seating, 
which there will be some revisions, we understand, in the renovation of the Coliseum going on. Maybe not quite like what it was in the old days, but there will be something done to bring the students back more involved in the game with every reason to because they've hired a new and exciting coach to bring the electricity back to Humphrey Coliseum. I expect the fun to be back in there. I st- again, and I'm going to stop talking about this after this podcast, at least hopefully. I respect Ben Howland for the job he did. He did what he was hired to do in most regards. He was dismissed on Thursday because he couldn't do the next stage for Bulldog basketball. And within a couple of days, Mississippi State has its new coach ready to come in to find the team, figure out who he's got on the roster, maybe who he brings with him from the WAC, and then start working on the next stage of Bulldog basketball, which is A, get back to the NCAA tournament, and B, do it again and again and again, and win games there. Get to the postseason and win NCAA tournament games and keep Bulldog basketball going deeper into March. Hey, who knows? Maybe even into April. And let's give baseball a little bit of competition for the fan attention during these crossover weeks when both sports are in action. So that's the news from Humphrey Coliseum. That's the big news from campus over the weekend. And that's the news about the Diamond Dogs as they come home from Georgia and get ready to host Alabama in, let's be blunt, you hate to call any series this early in the season a must. This is a must-win series for Mississippi State. I'm not going to call it a must-sweep, but it's definitely a must-win because that aforementioned RPI, State's got to get it down in double digits pretty fast. And the competition is coming that will certainly do that if you win the games. It's that blunt now. Mississippi State can't even be a thinking about things like June at this point. They've got to win games here at the end of March and getting into April, settle things down, and get back in contention in the Southeastern Conference. So that's our podcast for this Overreaction Monday. Maybe not uh, quite as uh, uh, emotional as most, um, but... Then talk about all the mixed emotions going on between the frustrations of baseball and the celebrations of basketball. And oh, by the way, the spring football practice schedule has been published. It will start on March 24th. And oddly enough, well, not oddly is the wrong word, although it's certainly used often enough in connection with Mike Leach. But uh, three practices will be held after the spring game. One is not unusual. Two is not all that uncommon, but three whole practices set after the April 16th spring game. That's because Mike Leach is stretching out this spring, maximum of three practices each week, plus the spring game in the middle of it. And that's cutting it awfully close to, to the start of a fall, I'm sorry, spring semester exams when the academic calendar comes to its end. So that's the football aspect. We've talked about more of that as, as it comes nearer because practice is what? This week. <laughs> they get going in football this week, just as baseball's at home and basketball introduces a new coach. Nope, never a slow time here in the doghouse, but that's why you tune in, and that's why I try to give you material to tune in for. This is your host, David Murray, from the doghouse on the Believe Network. Have yourself a fine Monday and watch those overreactions. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.